I'm Harris Shilakovsky, violinist, composer, and fan of cosmology. Opus Magnanimus is a project that tells the history of our universe by introducing people who made important discoveries or inventions that enable us to understand our cosmos better. Events and discoveries and the people who are associated with those events are each represented with original music composed or arranged by myself. These pieces of music and songs will eventually become a compilation which will be released to the general public. But you get to hear them first, right as they're being sketched, performed, and produced on this audio podcast. Telling the history of our cosmos means reaching back in time to understand what our ancestors thought about. Our story includes people and discoveries in our own time It includes people of all races and ethnicities from the recent past, and it must reach all the way back into the past. Today, we're going back to the times of the ancient Mesopotamians, the people who inhabited the Fertile Crescent, which people later thought might be the Garden of Eden, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Archaeologists found cuneiform clay tablets that were inscribed with an early form of writing, which they have now been able to translate. These tablets from thousands of years ago show the creationary stories, and they introduce the Mesopotamian people's gods. Today, we'll meet these ancient Mesopotamian gods, who later became associated with planets. Each planet later came to represent a god or a goddess, and ruled certain areas of their lives. Astrologers would advise the rulers, the kings, and they would take the planetary movements as signs that meant something, that was going to predict something that was going to happen in the future. They called this divining and they used it to guide their kings in many, many day-to-day decisions that they would make. It was really important to Mesopotamians to interpret the movements of these heavenly bodies. They didn't start actually calculating orbits though that was a skill set that was developed later in history. So today, we're just going to start by meeting our ancient gods, 
since the ancient society revolved around these gods. Very early times, the Mesopotamian god Enlil was associated with the earth. He had kind of a nickname, Lord Breath, according to the translations of our scholars. <laughs> and the story went that Enlil actually built the city of Nippur, the holy city. The holy city itself was the rope that tied heaven and earth together. You see, Enlil built the city in a place, I guess, where he had separated An from Ki. An was the heavens, and Ki was the earth. So, obviously, everything used to be just one giant, well, if I use the word cosmos. <laughs> and then Enlil came along and separated the heavens from the earth, the An from the Ki. And that actually, the place in between there, between earth and heaven, right where he performed this amazing feat became a place where humans could live and thrive. And, of course, being in the middle of the Fertile Crescent, it was, in fact, a place where people were able to live very well. So this story, it's part of what we call a creation story because it's these early stories that explain the beginning of everything. There was a, a fellow named Thorkild Jacobson. He's a, a scholar, and he called this story the Eridu Genesis. Now, the rulers, the kings of the people of that land thought Enlil was like just you know a great a great guy a really great god a, a, a model ruler and they imitated his behavior they felt that he had great behavior that he was that he ruled heaven and earth I guess with with this sense of, of justice. He didn't tolerate any evil. Uh, people would travel to his temple in Nippur, and rulers from all over Sumer would travel to Enlil's temple in Nippur to become associated with his greatness. And they would curry favor with the god by offering up these, their actual land and, and precious things like jewelry or whatever. Uh, later on, Enlil is such an important 
God in, in the ancient Mesopotamian story that they they keep on like praying to Enlil later on in history in the Sumerian flood story because everybody in those days had a story of the great flood the epic flood which was like what happens in the Hebrew Bible later on uh, we have Noah in the Old Testament who survived the flood well Enlil the ancient Sumerian god or Mesopotamian god created a a man, I guess, called Zeusudra, and he also survived the flood. So Enlil made Zeusudra immortal. He would live forever. In, in fact, in, in the later Babylonian flood story, which of course was like a thousand years later, Enlil, according to them, actually caused the flood to kill off all human beings. And the reason was because the human beings were making too much noise and woke him up from his godly sleep. <laughs> now, in my research, I also found mention of more of these ancient tablets that show pictures of ancient instruments uh, that people in the ancient Mesopotamia would have played. And they included things like, like kind of like a, a pipe that they blow into, and not like a modern one, but, but they had their own version of like a harp, and they had lutes. And of course, people have always been singing. Um, so anyway, they also found some evidence in one particular clay tablet that seems to show uh, how to play music. It's actually like music theory for ancient Mesopotamians. And it, it's, uh, it doesn't show everything, but it seems to indicate how to tune the notes of your harp and what kinds of notes you might get out of a ancient brass instrument, which was probably more like a, a, what, what we call a, a shofar, you know, which would be like a, a ram's horn or something. I mean, you had to work with what you had. Um, so, they, you know, they didn't have French horns in those days. <laughs> but uh, taking this information that, you know, we've found from ancient sources, I've extrapolated uh, some sounds that I think represent uh, what might inspire you to the think of ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Sumeria, and what a tribute to the god Enlil might have sounded like.
Mesopotamians obviously loved Enlil. He represented the very earth that they walked on. So naturally, they paid great tribute to him. I'm not sure if they loved Nergal was a god of war, a fighter inflicting death and was depicted as a bull and king of the underworld 3,000 years before the Common Era. According to later Hellenistic tradition, Mars was destructive, a god of war, death, and plagues. And in fact, Nergal was the Mesopotamians' god that became associated with the planet, the red planet, Mars. Ninurta was a warrior and a hero god in ancient Sumeria. Ninurta was son of Enlil, the lord of the wind. 
Enlil, by the way, was lord of the wind and the air and the earth and the storms. So, yeah. Kind of like Mother Nature. But anyway, Nanurta was associated with the planet Saturn. Now, the ancient Mesopotamians had identified not all of the planets, but a handful of the ones that you could obviously see with the naked eye, so to speak, including Jupiter. Now, the patron god of Babylon, which was several thousand years after the original Sumerians, but in the same location, uh, the patron god for Jupiter was Marduk. And this god was recognized in Babylonian astrology as the planet Jupiter. Then came Inanna, the ancient Mesopotamian goddess. She was love and war and beauty and sex and justice and political power. <laughs> she was originally called Inanna. Later on, uh, other peoples in the same part of the world, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Akkadians uh, started calling her Ishtar. She was the queen of the heavens. And the goddess of the Iana temple in the city of Uruk. That was her main cult center. And she became associated with the planet Venus. Venus went behind the sun, which of course was, you know, we would call that an eclipse of Venus. Uh, they, would, they would record that and they would say, oh, this is an omen. And uh, one of the main stars in the Mesopotamian religion, as it were, uh, was Venus, uh, Ishtar, um, who was the also the god of the morning star, uh, and uh, Ishtar was worshipped also with the evening star. So yeah, so what happens? Yeah, they. They eventually figured out that this was, oh, the morning star and the evening star were maybe the same star? Of course, we know it's not really a star, right? But uh, never mind, because <laughs> Venus isn't a star. We know Venus is a planet, goddess of love and beauty. And later Assyrians to them, she was the goddess of hunting and war. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. Perhaps we'll talk later on about the Babylonian god Nabu, who was the son of Marduk, uh, <clears throat> who was associated with the planet Mercury. But, um, 
I haven't written the music for those planets yet, so we'll talk about them a little later on. As we look at how ancient peoples thought about their gods and what those gods represented to them and subsequently the planets or stars that were associated with those gods, we come to understand a little bit more about how science isn't really complete. I came across a great little discussion of, because I came across this terminology called vernacular science, and I had never heard of that. And the idea was that there's something called vernacular science, and that is sort of the opposite, I suppose, of pure science. And of course, I didn't really know what pure science, I had to Google all these terms, because I'm growing up in the musical world, not the science world, and so I'm just a fan of science. I'm a student of science. So I have to Google a lot of stuff, you know? <laughs> anyway, I came across this, this abstract, this, this thing, publication, which I'll, I'll, uh, I'll list later on for you, in, in which we, we look at the subject of science and we realize that science isn't really complete because we haven't answered the question, why? Um, in which conditions and how does the, in which, what form or whatever, does the knowledge uh, get um, sorted out by the general public? How does, how does the general public uh, understand things in, in life? In, so uh, we have this, this problem that for a scientist it's different what their their need for accuracy of information uh, of or, or what I would call the truth uh, is different than what the average person what they call the lay person uh, for for the average person they they can have uh, but you know sort of these symbolic representations uh, what, of what we would think are scientific facts but they're not they're not really scientific we call that vernacular science knowledge because they're not really correct in scientific terms but they're acceptable uh, and they go along with people's belief systems, um, especially as they're discussing it with other people who have similar non-scientific backgrounds. So, so for for those folks, uh, 
that d don't, you know, research or, or study science uh, in an accurate way, it's sufficient for them to, to understand things just sort of symbolically. But there's this, um, there's a tension that develops between science people and the lay people uh, because our understanding of things is different. Uh, there are uh, <clears throat> differences in the way people uh, interpret how uh, the sexual conception is uh, is I mean the whole the whole process and and what it means and how it works and all this kind of stuff and uh, and and also perhaps in psychiatric subjects um, so this is this is an interesting uh, subject to think about when we're thinking about. Uh, how people uh, from different backgrounds um, do or do not uh, feel the same way. And it's because of this, uh, there's this, there's this framework of what they call social representation theory. So anyway, it's just an interesting subject that I came across, and I think it kind of gives you food for thought as you're, as you're looking at how uh, people's uh, knowledge and everything starts to develop and change. Uh, so anyway, th uh, there was a great uh, discovery of another tablet um, about 1,400 years before the technique of uh, calculating the movements of Jupiter uh, was supposedly invented by Europeans. It turns out that the Babylonians, way back, a thousand years before telescopes were invented, were using these mathematical techniques uh, that uh, became a modern calculus later on. So anyway, there was a lot of Knowledge that's it's been uncovered um, in these uh, tablets from Babylonia, ancient Babylonia. They're in the London's uh, British Museum. Uh, they talk about this uh, t uh, use of a trapezoidal shape in order to uh, trace uh, Jupiter's movements across the sky, and they use the speed and time and all kinds of concepts that were quite advanced. Um, so sometimes we think, oh, everything just went in a straight line in development from total ignorance to where the shining, you know, temple on the on the hill here, you know, of total knowledge. And that's not entirely accurate because there were very smart people going thousands of years ago. Uh, even though, you know, in the earliest cosmology or belief 
in the Mesopotamia, you know, 5,000 years ago, well, no, 2,000 years before the Common Era, they believed that Earth was a flat circle inside of a cosmic ocean. So, you know, but there, it's amazing what people did figure out much earlier, and we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we know everything and the people that came before us did not. Closer to the present time. Well, maybe not right up to the present time, but closer to our time. Let's move up to 1965 or so. Uh, there was a fellow, his name was Ed Dwight. He was the first black NASA astronaut. So 65, we're talking 35, 45, 55, 57 years ago. So not, you know, it's already been a while. But Mr. Dwight didn't have such an easy time of it working at NASA. That's uh, one of the, uh, the radio diaries from NPR, which are wonderful, that you should listen to every single one of them. <laughs> anyway, it was entitled, Ed Dwight was in line to be the first black astronaut history had other ideas. It was published July 5th, so, you know, just yesterday, no, excuse me, two days ago, 2022, written by Mika Hazel. And this is a fabulous, I have to give uh, Mika uh, credit. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I'm not sure if it's Mika or Micah. Um, but he went, um, you know, around, uh, he thought, oh my God, you know, I've gotten this great opportunity uh, as a black man. Maybe I can provide a great role model for a young uh, black uh, children to encourage them to go into what we now call, you know, STEM, to, you know, to study science, to become astronauts and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, the article points out that um, some uh, black folk actually uh, did not feel good about all the money that was being spent on the space race because they felt that it could have better been used to serve uh, the cause of civil rights and to help uh, in, uh, black communities that were, um, that were poor, quite frankly. Um, and, of course, at that time, the, uh, the Russians, which was at that time it was the Soviet Union, were... Um, we're making out like like we were horrible people, uh, you know, and putting themselves as a superior uh, communists uh, because they could easily see that we had racial inequality. So, um, so some people uh, thought, oh well, maybe we should send a black person into space. Um, and uh, it, that would uh, that would make America look better, you know. It would, uh, in effect, uh, I guess you would call it blackwashing 
the uh, the astronaut corps or the uh, the, uh, the space program, as it were. Uh, so he was in the Air Force. Uh, Ed Dwight uh, he was 27 years old. Uh, he loved flying, uh, and um, you know he was one of the. He was like the only black officer pilot, you know, and um, he, you know he was he was happy because he was doing very well. He was, but um, and then he got a letter asking him to join the astronaut training program. Um, and he did decide that he would do that. He accepted it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he thought he was going to become an astronaut. And it was very, very difficult. It was very grueling and everything. Uh, you know, they, they, they basically uh, trained astronauts uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to go and go and go until until they, as he said, until you would break, you know, to see at what point you break. So that's how they test people. But the thing was that, uh, uh, you know, he, he did very well uh, by working very, very hard. Um, but you know, the fact of the matter was is that uh, all of the original astronauts were all white male astronauts. Uh, and, um, you know, so it was exciting for a black man, but, um, uh, he, um, he started to, uh, uh, kind of get a little famous, you know, I mean, he, he got onto the cover of, of black magazines that were very popular, Jet Magazine, Ebony and Sepia magazines, and then he would go and make speeches to kids and he thought, wow, this is a great thing. This is really cool. Um, and then, but when he got back to Edwards Air Force Base, he said that, and I quote, the instructors, the classmates, everyone at Edwards Air, 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 excuse me, Air Force Base were livid. Um, the thinking was is that, uh, that everybody's working uh, really hard and, and he's going and giving speeches. Um, and Chuck Yeager was the commander of the program. Um, you know, he was very famous. He broke the sound barrier, blah, blah. And um, so, and, and he had a lot of influence on the selection of who would become a successful astronaut. According to Mr. Dwight, Chuck Yeager was the one who was the least... Uh, they at least um, happy about the fact that uh, Ed White was making speeches um, and uh, he tried to discourage him from finishing the training program so like you know that you know really sounds like a discriminatory type of treatment um, and then he found out later that Jaeger would call in other people and say, oh, isolate this guy, Dwight. Don't drink with him. Don't invite him to, to a party. Um, and he said the whole idea was to show these white students that we got to discourage him. Now this is starting to sound like racism. 
so um, Ye- and then Jaeger said uh, things that were less than complimentary about Dwight um, which of course whenever you say things like that it's he's a person uh, who has a lot of influence um, and uh, so you know was it racism uh, or was it just you know pressure or whatever but in any case there was a lot of tension between Jaeger and Dwight and then Dwight wasn't selected Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins uh, you know were the first guys to go to the moon blah blah wonderful and um, eventually uh, several years later uh, Dwight just resigned from the Air Force and he became a, a sculptor uh, so you know again in, in it seems like in, in an attempt to sort of make themselves look better the Air Force uh, made uh, Dwight an honorary member of the US Space Force and named an asteroid after him and I, I don't think he was too excited about it um, uh, and I, I mean, he's had some good successes and stuff like that, but uh, but again, it 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 feels like it feels like it feels like there's a hint of 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 racism there, but it it's it's not just a hint because, in fact, when I read this, I thought, geez, you know, I'd I'd like to see if I can find anything else about this subject um, to see if uh, if this was um, if this was a problem or not this uh, possible uh, uh, racism in uh, in our space program and um, I thought uh, you know, for my next subject, the big, big topic nowadays, uh, we can't avoid it. It's one of the biggest pieces of news. It's also one of the most expensive projects ever completed in the space industry. Um, and scientists, of course, are very, very, very excited about this James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, called they they call it JWST for short, um, and uh, this is a an infrared telescope, very large, um, and it was launched uh, on a Ariane uh, five rocket from French Guiana, and um, it's it's supposed to be the the big deal, and and in fact, it's been very 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 exciting for me because of my interest in learning about early cosmology because I'm really looking for that information that tells us how did our cosmos come to be when it was just a baby cosmos you know some people talk about the big bang uh, you know how did it all happen and by looking through a huge telescope that can see as far as the as farther than 
you know, anybody's ever seen before, one can literally look backwards in time because you're looking at things, you know, you're looking back at the speed of light, mind you. So you're actually looking backwards in time. You're seeing things that happened millions of years ago. So this is quite exciting. Um, this Webb telescope will serve thousands of scientists and astronomers, people that study the stars and the, and the cosmos and everything, and planets, and study all of everything about the history of the universe, going all the way back to the, you know, the little things that happened right after the Big Bang, you know, the, how solar systems uh, were formed, um, the, the evolution of our own solar system. Um, it, it, it was renamed, though. Um, I, I should also say, you know, again, I would like to feature on this podcast always the people who made it happen. I, and I just love to give credit to all the people that that give their efforts towards this. It's not just the big famous scientists and the people who got their name on the project, but there's so many people. There are well over a thousand people that were involved with this project. It's huge. Uh, maybe I'll post a little picture that NASA um, posted of, of all, not all, but many of them many of the people who are involved in developing this incredible project. Um, but it, it was renamed at one point. It used uh, The original name was just going to be called Next Generation Space Telescope, the NGST. They renamed it after a former NASA administrator, James Webb. Um, and it's a beautiful collaboration between the, the European Space Agency, the Canadian Space Agency, and our American NASA agency. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's great. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about the technology and, and some other uh, things about this project. Um, it's the most amazing thing, uh, going, seeing the first light, going, looking back 13 and a half Billion years to see first stars and galaxies, how how uh, uh, the infrared sensitivity uh, means they can see the faintest, earliest galaxies, uh, spirals, ellipticals, all this kind of stuff, birth of stars and protoplanetary systems, and the, the origins of life, and I mean, it's just incredible. But they renamed it after this guy, James Webb. And I thought, Let, let's look at this guy, James Webb. So I looked up James Webb. And um, because, look, they're naming this huge project, which has cost more than any project ever. And, um, and I found a little, you know, after talking about uh, Ed Dwight, I thought, well, it would be interesting to look at James Webb. And I found a little article, well, not just one article, but quite a few articles on the subject of what kind of person James Webb, this person who they named uh, 
this whole project after. Now, why did they name it after this guy who was the head of NASA? Well, he was the head of NASA for a really long time. He was an incredibly powerful pe- person, and he was the person who kept money flowing into NASA for years. Lots of money. Not just millions, but billions of dollars into projects like this one. And, um, and you know, when, when you have... See, the thing is, in the olden days, you'd have a scientist who would look through, you know, or an astronomer, a person who loved to look at the stars. They would look through a telescope, and they would write down what they saw, and they would, they would create all these records and, and create all kinds of uh, uh, important information data that can be used to figure out the nature of things. And uh, nowadays, it, it, science is done very differently because we have large, large institutions that have been formed. Uh, many times they're associated with governmental associations, uh, organizations. We have schools uh, that are involved. We have uh, we have private contractors. I mean, all kinds of different organizations, and these organizations um, need a lot of money to pay all those salaries, and so they um, tend to uh, protect the income of the flow of money that comes in, uh, and they uh, they end up perhaps protecting the organization too much and not th- and not protecting sometimes as much the people the individuals who are doing the work uh, not looking out for everybody's interests but keeping the interests of the organization or the company over the interests of the people um, and uh, so you end up with these possibilities of things like this Chuck Yeager, uh, this discriminatory uh, activity. Uh, and then now you've got this guy, James Webb. So uh, James Webb was accused of homophobia. So, well, uh, this was very common, um, you know, that uh, it's always been very common that... Um, that you have people uh, that uh, that don't understand or are insensitive to people that are not like them. Uh, we call it othering, um, and uh, and there's this huge history. There were headlines uh, as they were developing the James Webb Telescope. They say, I'm looking at one particular headline that says, uh, this is on a publication called DW, Made for Minds. It says that the line says, James Webb, how a space telescope tore American scientists apart. Uh, So, um, and uh, quoted in this... um, in this article, that uh, again, I'll I'll put the information at the end, so you can uh, so you can uh, read it for yourself. Um, 
there are some tweets that were quoted here by the author uh, Chanda Prescott Weinstein, um, who uh, is a scientist herself, and um, and is also a, a, a specialist in women's studies and gender studies, and uh, uh, largely inspired by her own personal uh, experiences in life. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, she's quoted in here, and I, I'm particularly tickled by that because I'm really enjoying her book, uh, The Disordered Cosmos, which I recommend if you're interested in learning about stuff that you might have never thought about. Um, uh, Chanda um, will will hit you right between the eyes with uh, some truth that um, that may that may feel may make you feel a little uncomfortable. Um, it's a very unfortunate thing when uh, scientists, people who want to study science and physics and astronomy and astrology and cosmology and uh, not astrology, astrology is kind of uh, and is not a science it's a it's a, uh, it's a practice uh, I'm not going to say any more about that but um, people want to they want to love the work that they do they want to be excited about these great scientific discoveries but it's it's the joy is almost ripped away from people when their ability to to live as a, a person with the same rights and the the same right to exist that any other person has uh, and it it colors unfortunately the beautiful work that's done um, in order to learn the truth about the universe. But the, the, unfortunately, uh, science uh, is warped and bent uh, too often by people in power to empower people and organizations even more. So we'll go into this subject a little bit more in depth uh, as we uh, as we uh, explore uh, different projects and things like that. But uh, suffice to say that there's a strong uh, possibility that James Webb was was homophobic and perhaps uh, also um, may have. It looks like it looks like homophobia was his. Uh, so it was his um, big bugaboo uh, uh, might have been involved in efforts, at, as they say, in the State Department and in NASA to, quote, sideline, fire, and even persecute gay people. So it's a big question uh, that's brought up by this particular article. Um you know whether or not um, one should be, uh, as they say, 
celebrating a legacy of discrimination uh, and sending a negative signal to the next generation of astrophysicists. That's a quote from this article, which I will uh, tell you about uh, from DW.com. So, yeah, bias, racism, sexism, and homophobia are not exclusive to the general public uh, politics. It's also infiltrating uh, science. Um, And uh, so, yeah, this is what scientists uh, who are are queer or are are, uh, of another color that is not white uh, or members of various other groups that are in the minority um, can suffer a, a great deal uh, from uh, discrimination. And uh, so this is something that uh, uh, we want to make sure we can have what we call pure science, um, but it's really the the desire to have uh, the access to the truth to all people of all backgrounds. My tribute to Ed Dwight Jr. I wanted to make sure that it represented some black music of the 60s and so I listened to a little cool in the gang and I hope that I captured a little bit of the essence of some of their funky music and you know that they brought so much joy to the world and I hope that this uh, kind of brightens up your day Uh, my tribute to Ed Dwight
I hope you'll join me <laughs> for the next episode. We're going to keep on talking about what it took to create the James Webb Space Telescope, a little more about what it can do, the incredible discovery that we're going to be able to do with it very soon, and a little bit more about uh, the materials that went into it and where those materials come from and who gets those materials out of the ground. And, um, yeah, we're going to we're going to launch the James Webb Space Telescope in music. Uh, the actual rocket already went up in the air, but we're going to hear the the new piece of music that I'm composing. Uh, and I hope you join me. Don't forget that you can um, always support um, this uh, podcast uh by using the links um, uh, that will take you to our sponsorship pages, and you'll get some great benefits. You'll be able to watch the bloopers and you know all kinds of fun stuff. Be able to vote on different things. Uh, be able to get your name on everything, and so yeah, it's some great stuff. Um, and uh, coming a little bit later on, we'll even have some merch that you can get. Um, but please, please uh, give us a thumbs up, give us a give us a vote, give us a a listen, and tell your friends to listen to Opus Magnanimus, History of the Cosmos in Music by Harris Shalikovsky. Thanks so much for your support.